And when you get on a food truck in Westlake Hills and you drive into the bowels of Austin, Texas, and get down on the streets with the crack addicts, the glue sniffers, the prostitutes, the convicted felons, and begin to build relationships with them. There's a discovery there that is nothing short of profound. Welcome back to the Experience Growth Podcast, where the collective mission of our community is to build big experiential businesses, and more importantly, build big experiential lives. Now, we do that ultimately by learning. Uh, We learn from others. Why? Because leaders are learners. And whether we're leading ourselves, leading our families, leading small businesses, or leading massive organizations, being on the forefront of leading a movement towards experiential living is our goal. I'm your host, Chris Suarez, and today we will introduce you to uh, just a mission-based, experiential-focused human being, Alan Graham. Alan founded and is the CEO of Mobile Loaves and Fishes. This is a program that has been in existence for over 21 years. Uh, They have mobilized over 20,000 volunteers. They have served over 6 million meals uh, to those that are hungry, primarily those that really began as homeless. One of my favorite parts of this conversation is Alan's definition of what home really is and how experiential finding a home and creating a home and building a home really is for everybody involved. Back in 2005, Alan created what has now gained and garnered some national and international exposure and and press. Uh, He created Community First, uh, which is a 51-acre master-planned community that provides affordable, permanent housing and a supportive community for the disabled, the chronically homeless in Central Texas. It has now uh, become the home for over 500 formerly homeless humans. Alan is is an author. He wrote the book, Welcome Homeless, just an incredible book uh, recounting stories and, and, and passages of homeless humans that found a home and a place and experienced life differently because of this mission that Alan is going to talk about. And we're going to end with me sharing just a few passages from that book and getting Alan's perspective on on what really creates the fabric of human lives. So please listen from start to end. Please share this conversation with as many as possible if you find value in it. And and please join in and welcome Alan into our community and become part of his. Here is Alan Graham. I'd love to just jump right in. My understanding is the the story of Mobile Loaves and Fishes began at least on the ground around 1998. And maybe we'll get pre-1998 because I know stories don't start when they begin. They start well before that and truly love the mission of of really what led to that. So I'd love to get there. But maybe for for those in our community and audience that are not familiar with Mobile Loaves and Fishes and MLF, maybe tell us a little bit about the purpose of it how it started, what the heart um, of the organization is all about, and then we can go from there. Yeah, great. Yeah. So it was founded in 1998. In fact, uh, looking at the framed 12-page agreement that the priest at our church had signed authorizing uh, the start of Bobolos and Fishes in September of uh, 1998. And of course, you're right, it, it goes back further than that. But 
in, in a very simple way, a spiritual journey on my part, where I just began to ask God, what do you want me to do? What, what are the little things you want me to do? I didn't ask him for the big things, just what do you want me to do? And I started doing a lot of the little things at church. And my family, I have a fairly large family, I have five kids, and we just got more engaged in, in that life. And, and there was a time when my wife and I were having coffee with a girlfriend of ours, and she was telling us about a ministry in Corpus Christi, Texas, where on cold winter nights, multiple churches would come together and pool their resources in order to take out to the men and women that were on the streets of Corpus. And uh, Chris, for some reason at that moment that I can only attribute to Providence, the image of a catering truck Hmm. entered my brain as a distribution vehicle from those that have abundance to those that lack. And I'm a serial entrepreneur. I think little things and take them big instantly. And this idea wouldn't go away, thank God, actually. And and here we are 22 years later with a tiger uh, by the tail. But it was really simply, euphemistically, five white guys from Westlake Hills. Westlake is the kind of a Tony neighborhood of Austin. uh, And that's where I raised uh, my family. We were on the low end of the Tony. But Nonetheless, it was kind of that neighborhood, pretty milky white, upper middle class to some of the richest people in the world type of a deal. And and here we are going to go out and feed the homeless on the streets of Austin. It was pretty funny, but again, providential. So let me ask you this. It, it's interesting as I listen to you um, talk about how you started doing little things, right, in, in everyday life, in your family looking to serve in little ways that grew. And then you said, well, gosh, I'm, I'm a serial entrepreneur. I love taking the little things and, and making it big. You start with one truck, actually, maybe not even a truck. Was it a minivan or how did, what, what let's go back to when it was little. What did that look like? Cause now let me just, for some perspective, 21 ish years later, over 20,000 volunteers just about maybe just over 6 million meals served to those that are hungry. Bring us back to what was that little thing that started it? Well, the little thing was simply the catering truck was the spark, the idea. But in order to take that spark, could could these five white guys actually go out on the streets and, uh, and do this? Because there's a lot of stereotypes around our friends on the streets, criminals, drug addicts, mentally ill, dangerous, lazy, all all the things. And so we had to to test it first. And so one of my buddies had a green minivan. And one night we loaded up 75 sack meals, September 13th, 1998, actually, and, and went out on the streets with a sixth person on board who was formerly chronically homeless, a guy named Yushin Flake, who's uh, deceased now. And we, we just, Chris had one of the greatest evenings ever. It was beautiful. We were hooked. And we were going to buy the one truck, and the one truck was going to be the one truck. But the one truck led to probably 20 trucks that led to doing street retreats, that led to doing uh, community first, community works. It's always the one thing. It's the first step that leads ultimately to that last step. I heard you say we can't go and fix homelessness unless we understand what home is. What, was that part of the journey? Did Houston Flake teach you what home was or did you have to figure that out or define that? I think I had to figure that out 
and have it defined for me. But I do believe that Houston put me on the path of loving people and not fixing and repairing people. And that's kind of how I see that. That piece of it. If, if I were to ask you how what goes into the definition or defining home as you see it or as you think about it or feel it, what would you say? What I'm able to say today, built on a, a book that was published in 2008 entitled Beyond Homelessness, Christian Faith in a Culture of Displacement, subtitle, written by a couple of uh, theologians, one out of Hope College up in Michigan, another, and both of them are friends of mine now, a guy out of the University of Toronto, Brian Walsh. And in that book, it talks about the phenomenology of home. And within the phenomenology of home are eight characteristics of home. And I'm just going to blast through these if you want to touch on them. Number one, home is a place of permanence. Secondly, home is a dwelling place. Three, home is a place of embodied inhabitation. Fourth, home is a place of hospitality. Five, home is a place of safety and refuge. Six, home is a place of stories and memories. Seven, home is a place of orientation And last, but very not least, home is a place of affiliation and belonging. And so within the context of that phenomenology has nothing to do with a physical structure of four walls and a roof. And to me, that was revelatory to be able to marinate on what that means and how you and I would easily give up all of our possessions to ensure that we don't lose those human possessions, wife, children, parents, brothers, sisters, close personal friends that we've had for decades, that, that kind of thing. And so that, that became our driving force is understanding that if you want to understand homelessness, you have to understand home. And just because somebody moves up off the streets into a, an apartment somewhere doesn't cease their homelessness. And then one of the things that I like to tell people in order to have accomplished what we've accomplished, we've had to raise a lot of money. In order to raise a lot of money, you have to know a lot of people with a lot of money. And, And so we have a lot of millionaire and billionaire friends and supporters. And I've been in some of their homes that are extraordinary and have met some of the most homeless people you'll ever meet. Yet I've been under the bridge in disgusting third world country environments and met some of the most homeful people that you'll ever meet. And so it's, a, it's an American cultural thing that we think that if, if we keep buying all this stuff and surrounding us with all the accoutrements of mm-hmm. what we perceive as success, that these things will make us happy. And they, frankly, they don't. One of the things that, that you wrote in your book, Welcome Homeless, there was a statement in there that I wrote down that I would love, I would love just some perspective around, around it. You said you, you've got to get outside of your comfort zone. You've got to go down to the places that allow you to connect with people. How do we do that? What does that mean to you? Well, if you take Westlake Hills, for instance, where I raised my family, the, the high school there is one of the top high schools in the 
United States. It has at a time, I don't know if the data is uh, true today. It's still that, it's still that top high school, but more number five on advanced placement exams in physics than any other school in the United States ever. Primarily white there is, is pretty random and usually brought in to play football. We just won state championship second year in a row, uh, football. And, and so it's a bubble and people have a lot of income. There's no suffering, no visible yeah, suffering. There's plenty of suffering. And there's the success as we perceive it, it is there in all of its glory. And we put our children on the same escalator to go out and be the biggest, the bestest, the richest, and, and the everything. And so we don't connect. Monday, yesterday was the beginning of Black History Month. And I, I do a recording every morning that I send out to a, a group of people called Goodness Morning. And I talked about a moment several years ago when I gave a talk in Dallas at the Paul Quinn uh, College, which is a historically black university. So I, I get there early and, and I go into the library where I'm going to give this talk. And th there's this giant wall full of all of these African-American achievements over the history of our country. And I, I'm going, shit, I didn't know that. Hmm. Damn. Nah, God, crap. Yeah, really? Boom, 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 boom. And then I'm looking up Black History Month and where that came from. And I'm reading about other great stuff. And then there was the movie about the, the three black women that, you know, one of them, a gifted mathematician that basically landed the guy on the moon. And, and what have we done? What have we culturally done to suppress that glorious information of these beautiful brothers and sisters. And, and, and when you live in the bubble, you become suppressed. You're going you're gonna to think, you're going to look like, you're going to dress like, and, and you're not going to have any interaction. And when you get on a food truck in Westlake Hills and you drive into the bowels of Austin, Texas, and get down on the streets with the crack addicts, the glue sniffers, the prostitutes, the convicted felons, and begin to build relationships with them. There's a discovery there that is nothing short of profound. And, and that's really what I'm talking about in that, in that back in the day, if you go to Europe and you go to a castle, there's a castle up top and then Right below the castle are all the people that work for the castle. There's the middle class and then the lower class and then the farmer class. And they were all there. They were all connected. They were all friends. Yeah. And we can Hollywoodize it. Even back during the days of plantation slavery, that is, so no, no justification. There was a lot of people that took deep care of the humans. And then we abolished it and began to just abuse people through Jim Crow laws, peonage, all kinds of horrible stuff that in a lot of ways continues to manifest to this. Yeah. Alan, one of the things that I'm hearing is it didn't stop with feeding people. That's a need, right? It's a basic human need. And yet um, the need doesn't stop once human beings have food. But you used a phrase that you began to communicate and build relationships with them. 
And I've got to believe that was part of why community first, right? The village was created. You could have, you, as you mentioned, you could have, right, just kept on adding trucks and adding trucks and adding trucks and, and, and feeding more and more people. And yet there was another, there was another purpose behind your expansion into community first. Maybe talk a little bit about what community first is and, and how it began or forget how, what about why, like why community first began? Well, if you go back to the truck, there were three components of that truck that, I mean, we didn't know at the time. We've learned this in the rearview mirror. Everything we've learned is in the rearview mirror. We just plod along. And, and then we're called visionary. And there was no vision. But there were three things about that truck. Number one, Chris, is the truck went to where the people were. It didn't herd people to a centralized soup kitchen location. Number two is... I'm cut out of an abundant giving hospitality cloth. If you come to my house for a party, it's going to be a party. And it's going to have lots of food, lots of drink, and we're not running out. And so when the truck went out, we didn't put dated food, leftover food. We were bringing the best out there. And then the third thing, and, and then as part of that abundance was people making a choice. Instead of getting your food unit, you get to make a choice based upon what's on the truck. And then the last thing is that those that were serving and those being served were on the same side of the serving counter. And that created a one-on-one, human-to-human, heart-to-heart relationship. Hello, my name's Alan. What's your name, brother? Hey, my name is Chris. Go, how you doing? man, I'm doing great. I'm so grateful for you guys uh, being here today. And I go, well, what would you like today? And we go down the line. Mm. And then I might say something to Chris that might be, uh, man, is there, is there anything I can pray for you? And you go, God, yeah, man. Amazing that you asked. My, I just found out that my mother that I hadn't seen in eight years was diagnosed with cancer. And then you get your meal, I leave, but maybe I come back in a week and there's Chris. And I yell across, hey, Chris. Mm. And the most important word in the English language to Chris Suarez is Chris. It's not, hey, dude, mm. or bro, it's Chris. And next thing you know, the white guy from Westlake Hills that runs a real estate business knows my name. And, and then Chris says, hey, Alan. And so now all of a sudden it's Alan and Chris. And, and then I got the idea in 2002 that we implemented in 2003 to go spend the night out on the streets with my friends. And so about 15 of us embarked one night and spent 72 hours on the streets. And that was mind blowing. Now my relationship with Chris metaphorically is, is deepening and I'm learning lots of things. I'm learning that you're a drug addict. I'm learning that your father beat you up and molested your sister. I'm learning that your mother was a prostitute and a drug addict, and you left home at the age of 12, and you're riding the rails at 13. You know, whatever. Mm -hmm. It's all unfolding. And, and what I'm learning more than anything is that you too, regardless of your circumstances, desire to be loved and valued, you know? Yeah, it'd be nice to have a house, but more than anything, I want to be in relationship. 
We got an African-American guy here that will probably die within two weeks. We call him old school. And he's been in the hospital, now in hospice. We're trying to move him today, maybe tomorrow at the latest, back into the village because he wants to die here. An old guy, a drug addict, you know, all the things, illiterate, uneducated, told my white wife, my white privileged wife the other day, you're all I have. You are my family. And I want to die with my family. Yeah, that's what this is all about. So we're scrambling like a son of a bitch right now to get him back here, you know, and get all the pieces. And hopefully that's all uh, coming together today. So here's two, two diverse cultural things coming together that will create phenomenal joy and happiness for all of us. For everyone. Yeah, forever. Yep. And, and, and the only thing that was needed was a relationship. Yeah. Human to human connection. Yeah. That went beyond fit. Physical was involved, but it went beyond that. Yeah. And beyond who we think we would normally be hanging out with. I, I live here in the village and I don't know if they told you, but I had open heart quadruple bypass a little over three weeks ago. I kept it on the down low for a lot of reasons. And the announcement really wasn't made except for a very select group of people until the morning that I'm under the knife. Hmm. And, and so this is really my first week back in the village. Wow. And it's amazing to be around my neighbors here and, and have them look at me. People from all walks of life, gay people, transgendered people, black people, brown people with little tears down. I was so worried about you. It, it just, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. So for those that don't know, tell us a little bit about the village. And I'll tell you, Alan, about maybe three or four years ago, and it, it, it wasn't until recently that I even made the connection between the village and mobile loaves and fishes, interestingly enough. But about three or four years ago, I had a real estate agent from one of my brokerages reach out to me and she said, we need to meet for coffee. And uh, I said, okay. And, and, and we, we went to coffee and, and she came to me and said, I love real estate. I've been doing it 20 years, but I just heard this incredible story about a community in Austin. It, it's called Community First. It, there's a village and, and our city needs, that's what our Portland, that's what our city needs. And I am going to work for the rest of my career to begin raising funds to create that. And I thought, hmm, let me look up community first in the village. And sure enough, I, I, I look it up and I realize that there is the connection between mobile loaves and fishes. And I called one of our, our team members in Austin and I said, hey, do you know about this community? And now this is a couple of years later, we're having this conversation. So I am, I, I understood from them and from, from then reading your book of, of what the village was. But for those that haven't gone through that, haven't done the research, what is the village? How, how do people live there? What's the why behind it? Yeah. Yeah. So in 2005, after spending all this amount of time now, about seven years, building these relationships uh, with people and asking the question, why in the most abundant country ever, ever in the history of the world, do we have people that live on the streets and under bridges? How can that be? And, and so I got the idea to go out and buy a gently used recreational vehicle, a fifth wheel, lift one person up off the streets and plant them in the privately owned RV park here in Austin. And going back to the serial entrepreneurial real estate developer mindset, I began to fantasize about building an RV park 
This was inexpensive to do relatively. I'd live in an RV all day long. And and so this idea started to build this RV park. And and I've been working on this since, you know, 2005, 2006. I'd lift a second person up, a third person, a 10th person, a 20th person, all the while trying to get my arms around uh, how to develop an RV park. I've developed lots of things residential, office, retail, air cargo. I knew the real estate development business. I knew that world front and back. But, you know, to build an RV park and operate one, you don't know 100%. So I hire, I hire a consultant, pay him 15 grand, teach me everything you know about RV park and put a business plan together and begin to promote that uh, business plan. I thought we were going to uh, collaborate with the city of Austin, but that, that, turned out to be not in my backyard, impossible. And, and then I have a leadership style. I think I have a couple of giftings. One of those is I'm a really recognize what my limitations are. I know what I'm really good at and I know what I'm not good at or what I hate doing. And I don't mind knowing all that. And that allows me to bring people in to complement my giftings. I'm a, I'm a good communicator. I'm a promoter, persistent, all those kinds of things. But you do need engineers and architects and accountants and other people in the mix. And so I began to build uh, this thing out. And part of that is inviting other people to join me. And I'm, I'm one of these guys that gets laser focused on a vision, mission, values, and goals. And I don't waver off of that vision, mission, values, and goals. I'm an extraordinarily focused individual. And so if you, Chris, want to join me, us, in this effort, jump on in. And as a result, we've now created a 51-acre master plan community of 550 homes that include about a third of them. RVs are what's called a part model RV, and two-thirds of these cute little microhomes, architecturally designed and built by, you know, fancy custom and production home builders. We have an outdoor movie theater. We have a farming operation, a blacksmithing shop, a wood shop, an entrepreneur hub built by one of the richest people in the world with art, pottery. We have our online fulfillment center there, silk screening, crafts, jewelry making. We have an aquaponics operation uh, on site. We have a car care business. We have a market. I don't know if I said this, but an outdoor movie theater, Alamo Draft House with a 500 seat amphitheater. And so it's we're inviting the community, hence community first. If you want to mitigate this, you got to get involved. You got to quit yelling at the mayor. The mayor can't do this. It's not his problem. It's our problem. We need to deal with it. And so that's our fundamental philosophy is to to do that. It's turned out to be an extraordinary place that has gained some national movement and growing. You know, what's interesting is throughout that village, there's evidence of partnership. You said that by recognizing our limitations, it allows us to be able to invite people in to join that mission. It's interesting. There's some overlap. I, I believe the cinema was a partnership with, I think you mentioned Alamo Draft House, which Austin-based KW, Keller Williams, who I have an affiliation with, has donated some funds. We actually did an earlier podcast episode with Rob Gandy of Cielo. 
and he's helped with some 3D printing and financial donation as well. You're a master at building relationships. How, how important, clearly with people, but also with supporters. How important is that for anyone trying to start a movement or build around a, a mission? It's like real estate, location, location, location. In our business, it's uh, the three R's. It's relationship, relationship, relationship. And, and so to us, it's... Uh, Critical. P- people are stunned at our our ability to raise money and and our ability to attract uh, people uh, to want to join in with our vision, mission, values, and, and goals. But look, it, people most people don't understand how to raise money, and and I believe that we do. Twenty one percent of our revenue comes from nine percent of the people, and that nine percent. It's called the Pareto principle, the 80-20. You've heard about the 80-20, but it's Pareto. We live into Pareto. And that 9% that give the 91%, and the 91% that give 9% are very valuable to us too. But that 9% of people that are in the millionaire to billionaire class of people don't want to be treated like an ATM machine. And that's how most nonprofits treat highly resourced people as if they're an ATM machine. They go to them with their, I need ATM card and go, if you would give me a bunch of millions of dollars, I'm going to go solve this problem for you. And that's not what they're looking for, man. They're, they're just like you and I. They're, and in fact, they're lonely because they become prey, you know, to the predators out there. They, they have to put up all this shield in order to protect themselves. And I tell people that it, it is rare that we would ever ask somebody for money. You, you want to be a part of this? You come in and ask us. Now, that's not being arrogant. What that is, value in who you are as a human being. And, and if you're committed to what it is that we're doing, you're going to look at me someday or somebody on our staff and you're going to go, I want to give. What are the options? And we're going to lay out a banquet table of options that, that, that meet who you are and how you want to do it. The amount, if I know that you're worth $5 billion, what am I going to ask you for? How do I put together a plan that's going to go and ask you for a specific amount of money? But if I tell you we're trying to raise $100 million here, and here are the many ways that one could invest in that from a $25 gift to a $25 million gift. Right. You decide. That philosophy actually goes along with your philosophy of the entire organization that you become more human through humanizing others. On both sides of that table or on both sides of the truck, we all want to be humanized. We, we all want to feel like we are humans helping humans. And you're right, if, if done improperly, I don't feel humanized in giving. I feel monetized in giving. And yet mission is built around and with humans, not money. Yeah. And so we have a philosophy here. It's called the, the HP ratio to the power of G, where H is, is heart. The denominator is pocket to the exponential power of God equals unstoppable momentum. In fact, the streak that I live on here is heart over pocket. And that's how we treat people. We're after your heart. We want you to love what we do, 
here. I, I don't need your money. Would love to leverage your resources, but only if that's your desire. But I love your heart. And if you love the work that we do, and that meets you, because you may go, look, man, I'm my, me and my family, we're, we're stray dogs, puppy dog, and kitty cat people. That's important work, too. I'm not going to elevate my work over that work or whatever. Yeah, let me ask you this. And it's something that I, that I started thinking about the first time I, I came across Community First. As I, as I look at it as a concept and solution, I can't see why this has not been reproduced in cities across the country. Is there a reason why? Like what prevents that, do you believe? Well, there's a phenomenal book that was uh, written, published back in the 1960s called Reclaiming the American Dream by Richard Cornell. And they talk about the three sectors that exist in our world here, government, business, and what they call the independent sector of the nonprofit world. And in this book, he quotes, oh, I can't think of the name of the, the author now, but it was published in the mid-1800s, mid to mid-late 18, Alex de Tocqueville. And de Tocqueville was British, I believe. And, and he, he spent some time over here and he could not believe that we built this country without government funding. We built the roads, we built the railroads, we built the seaports, we built the schools, we built the towns. There was no taxation until the 1920s. And, and so Cornell kind of moves us through this period of time up through the Depression and, and then the advent of the government coming in and performing all of these tasks for us to the point where we have almost completely abdicated everything to the government. So if you look at the issue of homelessness, we're mostly yelling at the mayor and the city council. So if I come to Portland and I Google and study that, it's gonna be it's a political warfare. Yeah. It's it's people yelling at the mayor and the city council. It's that city council, that mayor and that city council. And it's the same thing going on in Austin, Texas right now. When in reality, we ought to be standing in front of that mirror yelling at ourselves. And Cornell in the 1960s was lamenting, how do we bring back this powerful, innovative, creative third sector, the independent sector, the nonprofit world. And, and so that's what we've lost. And, and he poses in there that, government has now become a competitor to that independent sector. Hmm. We can solve these things. So now I'm competing metaphorically with the government to, to go and solve homelessness. So that, that answer is that quite brilliant. I mean, truly, I, I just wrote down mirror versus mayor. Yeah. It begins to answer that problem and that question. Yeah. And I think, I think it's the mirror. There's not that many homeless people. We see a lot of it, but I will tell you it amounts to in the hundreds of 1% of our entire population. It's In Austin, it's about six one-hundredths of 1%. Nationally, it's somewhere near that number. We're assaulted with it because you live in a, a place 
Portland or Austin, and there's a concentration in places, and you see it, and you see the panhandling on the street corners, which is a whole other conversation of why that even exists. And it's to me, it's government interference. Hmm. I want to want to wrap up our conversation, Alan, with if if you'll allow me to read just a couple sentences from your book. You write these couple sentences strung together. And uh, I would just love for you to comment on them after I read them. You wrote, together, human lives are woven into a fabric made stronger and more useful than its individual part. But isolated, each individual strand is more easily frayed. And unless other threads come together to be braided into a cord, the single strand will break on its own. When the threads of each individual life come together, they become a thing that derives its strength and resilience from the structured collection of its parts. The last 20 plus years of your life have been braiding that cord. What can each of us do to braid that cord? Well, to allow ourselves to be braided into the cord. Say, I'm here, man. Braid me into the cord. And I want to be, I want to be part of a stronger collective. Because singularly, not much, but collectively, it's everything. And it really becomes unbreakable when it becomes everything. And it's people have to be willing to throw themselves into that braided uh, cord and, and the willingness to be, to be twisted and turned and, and knotted and the, the whole thing in order to be uh, a part of that cord. I love that. What strikes me is in an effort to create experiences for those around you in your city that you saw needed a different experience, right? A different experience in life. You've created an experiential life for yourself, for your families involved heavily as well, obviously in, in your work. And it's how we move that mission of living experientially forward by involving other people and creating experiences for those around us. Mm-hmm.